Good evening, Revolution. How's everybody doing tonight? My name is Justin Clark, and I'm part of the leadership team here at Revolution. Um, if you're new, welcome. We're super excited to have you. Um, Revolution is a group of folks who are committed to the truth of the scripture, and even though the way it's presented, um, as far as style, may look different than what you think of as traditional church, I can assure you that we're committed um, to the word and the truth that's in there. So we're excited to have you, and if you're coming back again to join us, um, thank you so much for being with us. I'm going to just give you guys a couple quick announcements, and then we're going to pray, and Pastor Matt will come up here and get started. Um, but begin to pray about um, the opportunity to assist in a spring um, free market as a leadership team. We'll begin to discuss the timing for that here um, coming up. Not the weather. Weather has broken, and the spring is about here. So free market, if you're not aware, is an opportunity for us to collect things we have at home, um, in our homes, in our friends' and families' homes, that we no longer need but are still in good um, and usable condition and give them to those who are less fortunate. We, we fill this place up. We open the doors on a Saturday morning. We invite folks from the community um, who have a need to come in and to take advantage of those things and take those things home with them where they can be put to good use. Um, so that's my announcement. Pray about that. Be thinking if um, maybe you would be willing to step up and be one of the folks who lead that effort. It takes about four to six weeks to f- fully prepare um, and then a week to pull it off. So that's, it's about a two-month time commitment, um, but we'll work with you on your schedule. We really would like for somebody to step up and do that. So, um, And just on a side note, I feel obligated to tell you guys that Pastor Matt is a little bit sad today. Um, so when he comes up here, he needs to cheer really loudly. Um, his Cornell Big Reds lost the Ivy League championship to Harvard yesterday. So he's, he's a little disappointed. He's mourning. So he'd be really excited to get him pumped up when he gets up here. So that's for you, Matt. <laughs> Let's just pray and we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be here um, to worship with church family, to come together, um, to acknowledge just who you are as our king, um, and just to be mindful of the fact that there is a gap between us as sinful folks and you as our king, and that your son Jesus bridges that gap. And nothing else, nothing that we can do in this life, um, we can't be good enough, we can't be smart enough, we can't achieve enough enough earthly success um, to be found righteous in your eyes apart from your son, Jesus. And I just pray that as we continue to work through the book of Mark, Lord, that that just becomes clear to us that not only are you king and Lord of our lives, but you're king and Lord of everything that happens. And Lord, we thank you for that. It's in your name we pray. Amen. How are we doing, Revolution? Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, Am I on? Yes, I am. Okay. I, uh, I did not even know Cornell lost. I'm a traitor to my alma mater, to be honest. Uh, when they played Kentucky in the Sweet 16 a few years ago, I rooted for Kentucky. I'll just be honest with you, but so be it. Oh, we are going through the Gospel of Mark. We are in Chapter 9, I believe, verse 14. And we're going to talk about demons tonight. So um, I always pick, like, when, you know, the, the really cool topics when everybody's gone from spring break, but that's what they get for being gone for spring break. They're probably out there sinning anyway. We know it. So, 914, I don't know what page that is in the blue Bible. It's page what? 605. Man, we're still in 605. It's taking a long time. We're going to polish off chapter 9 tonight, and then next week we'll get into chapter 10 and talk about divorce. And Ryan said I'm supposed to be up here so I don't cause a bunch of feedback and all that kind of stuff, right? Okay. All right. 914. Are we ready? Let's go. And so when they returned uh, to the other disciples, remember that Jesus and the disciples were up on the mountain at the transfiguration. We saw that last week. They come down, and here's what Jesus and the, th- the three disciples are with him at when they encounter. 
They saw a large crowd surrounding them, and some teachers of religious law were arguing with them. Kind of a pattern by now, right? And, and when the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe, and they ran to greet him. Now, the awe is not from the transfiguration. The awe is probably just that, you know, you've got this argument going on. As we see in a minute, there are some problems going on. They're desperate, and then they want Jesus, and then there he is. He shows up unexpectedly in, the, in, unexpectedly in a desperate situation. Man, I can't even talk to him. Verse 16. Jesus asked, what is all this arguing about? In verse 17, one of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He is possessed by an evil spirit and won't let him talk. And whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. And then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said to them, You faithless people, or you faithless generation, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Why can't the disciples cast out this demon? We see in other places, in other gospels, that he gives them, Jesus gives them authority to cast out demons. But here they cannot. Now, you need to make a distinction here. This is not, not... Um, them mistaking just, just ancient people who are mistaking like demon possession for mental illness. If you go to the Gospel of Matthew, they clearly delineate. They understood mental illness. Right? They delineate between mental illness, physical illness, and demon possession. Now, if you talk to missionaries... If you talk to like Sean and Jim Dialley, if you talk to uh, people, especially Christians who have worked in psych wards, like I, a buddy of mine used to be a nurse in a psych ward, and, 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 and she would tell me that, um, and this was before I was a Christian, and she would tell me, Matt, I have seen people I know are, are sick, are, are mentally ill, even psychotic. And then I have seen people that have to be demon-possessed. And back then I was like, oh, yeah, right but she's a really sharp person. And she really believed that you could, you could really tell the difference. Now, the disciples here are probably just throwing Jesus' name around. And, and, and they're, not, they're, they're really not trusting God. We'll come back to that in just a second, unpack that a little bit more. And when he says these faithless people or this faithless generation, he's not talking about the disciples. Right. Generation is bigger than that. So he's talking about a lack of faith. Remember that the Jews were chosen people, period. They were to be a nation of priests. So it wasn't just the disciples that should have been involved here. It should have been anybody who called Yahweh God. Verse 20. So they brought the boy. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion. Another ev- More evidence that this, this is not just epilepsy, right? And he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening, Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy that can even go back to an infant. The spirit often throws him into the fire or into water trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean if I can, Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. And then verse 24, I've always loved this. This this is a guy that I resonate with. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. 
Does that hit anybody else other than, than, than me? Right? This is true faith. This is true faith. Because true faith always understands how inadequate it is. Does that make sense? You never have enough. And it's never about you. It's what you have faith in. Right? So when Jesus says anything is possible for anyone who believes or has faith, he's talking about the fact that they have belief or faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 25. When Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, he said, I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. That's true grace, is it not? To never enter him again, no matter what the kid does. Verse 26, then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet, and he stood up. Afterward, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? And Jesus replied, this kind, implying that there's different kinds of demons, right? Here. This kind can only be cast out by prayer. Some manuscripts have prayer and fasting. But that's the only way they can be cast out. And why is that? We'll talk more about this as well, but is there any more of an ultimate statement of faith than prayer? Isn't prayer, real prayer, not, not prayer of Jabez prayer, and I'm not picking on that, not claim it, that kind of stuff. If you say, you know, the right kind of words in the right kind of order, God has to give you something as if that's going to happen. But the kind of prayer where you just completely entrust God to take care of it. You're just turning it over to God and trusting that whatever he does is right. That's true faith. Verse 30. Leaving that region, they travel through Galilee. And we're going to come back and talk about the demon possession, but it's important to wrap this up because these things, the rest of this chapter fits here really well. Leaving that region, they travel through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know he was there. For he wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but three days later he will rise from the dead. They didn't understand what he was saying, however, and they were afraid to ask him what he meant. Jesus shows incredible power by casting out a demon. And then immediately he says, I'm going to die. Right on the heels of showing how much power he has, he says, but for your sake, I will become powerless. And the phrasing here is very interesting because he says that he is going to be delivered into the hands of his enemies. Now, if you remember the stories of David, if you go back to to 1 and 2 Samuel and the Chronicles, uh, when David sins, he's given at one point options, right? You can be given into the hands of your enemies or you can be have a plague, and be placed in the hands of God. He says, I, I, I want to be placed in the hands of God. And Jesus says the exact opposite. I'm about to place myself in the hands of the enemy for the sake of others. 33. After they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing out on the road? Now, 
As you've probably guessed by now, whenever Jesus asks a question, he's not actually searching for information. He's getting ready to get a conversation started. 34, but they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. They could not cast out a demon. Jesus does it like that. Jesus follows that up by saying, now I must suffer and die. And the next conversation the disciples have is, who's the best? You see how distorted that is? Right? See how distorted that thinking is? And yet, I've been in churches, good churches where people preach the gospel, and people argue over who gets to serve the community. What sense does that make at all? Verse 35, he sat down, called the 12 disciples over to him and said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. And then he put a little child among them and taking the child in his arms, he said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my father who sent me. A child in the ancient Near East was considered worthless. A child was considered worthless in the sense that they really could not give you anything. This is a little child. This is someone who can't work in the fields. This is someone who can't really help around the house. Any of you have had, like, a three- or four-year-old know that it's just like, especially if you have more than one. I mean, Emily and I just had one, and we still had to play zone defense, right? You're, like, constantly going back and forth. Where is he? Where is he? And you've got to know where they are at all times, Right? Because like three, four, five, if you don't have your eyes on them or ears on them at all times, there will be a fire, an explosion, something bad will happen that will potentially make the evening news, right? Kids have that power. Uh, my, one, my wife and I still talk about this. Today, I mean, I was at, you know, this is what happens, this man on man. I mean, I, I, I go to, you know, I was practicing law. I go to my law practice. Emily is trying to, like, fix lunch, trying to fix dinner, do something. Jackson wanders off. And next thing we hear, or Emily hears, is, mmm, delicious. <laughs> Never a good sign. And she goes running in there and finds him halfway through a Yankee candle, right? <laughs> this, is, this is what kids can do if you take your eyes off them for just a second. And so this is the kind of child Jesus is referring to. He said, you have to welcome this. You have to welcome those who can provide you with nothing. In other words, you are a total servant. A parent knows that if you have like a four-year-old or five-year-old, you are a complete servant, right? You cannot demand any right with a four or five-year-old. Reason has no place with a four or five-year-old. You are just there trying to keep it from destroying the house taking your sanity, right, and making sure that it grows up. And it's all about them. And this is what Jesus is saying. He said, you have to be like this. You have to be all about other people, not yourself. And this is coming from a God who just said, by the way, I'm going to die. I'm going to turn myself in the hands of the enemy. Verse 38. John said to Jesus, "Uh, Teacher, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. This is, a, this is a perfect example of trying to change the discussion really quick, right? Um, because he does not like where this is going. Verse 39, don't stop him, Jesus said. 
No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. Anyone who is not against us is for us. An important thing for the church to remember when they're squabbling over things that in eternally really don't matter. Right? If anyone gives you even a cup of water because you belong to the Messiah, I tell you the truth, that person will surely be rewarded. But if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me, he's pointing to the child probably again, to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. Everybody thinks Jesus is just, you know, codependent and wants a, wants a hug. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. Now, you'll be happy to know Jesus is exaggerating to make a point about how serious sin is, which is good for us guys because we'd all be eyeless, would we not? Verse 49, for everyone will be tested with fire. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? You must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live in peace with each other. This is how he ends this, to live in peace with each other. He goes through this long talk. He throws out a demon. He says that despite I have all this power, I am going to suffer and die on your behalf. He tries to get the disciples to sign on to that. And in the end, it's about being at peace with one another and the sin that he's talking about, it's, 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 if you look closely, what is he talking about? He's saying, you know, don't sin. It's horrible to sin. But what is it connected to? It's the me, 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 me. Right? Sometimes we, we, we take this out and, and then we say that it's all about lust. And, and, and lust can be, uh, can be a horrible thing because lust is often a, a guy or a girl looking at the opposite sex and seeing them not as a person but as a thing. Right? At the heart of, of sinful lust, that's what it is, as, as seeing a, a woman or man as less than human. But it's really about not being so self-centered upon oneself. Right? It's not just all about me. The disciples are still arguing, who's the greatest, all this other kind of stuff. Hey, 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 master, we, we put a stop to those people doing you know, stuff. And he's saying, don't you get it? You're here to serve. You're like a parent with, with a young child. You're, you're just here to serve. Now, how does all this tie in to where this kicks off with, with the demon possession and the casting out of, of demons? Here's where it goes. Let, let's start here. First, we have to back up a little bit and, and talk about demons because I think that we tend to have a really odd view. I mean, Christians either dismiss demons out of hand the kind of progressive, secular, modern kind of, ah, it's all mental illness, or that's all stuff, or I don't want to talk about that. Or you meet those people who are just like really have a creepy fascination with them, right? It's like one or the other. And, 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 and the truth is we need to land somewhere in between. Now, um, I had a professor in seminary who I, I believe, I walked into his class thinking this guy was like next to God because he was one of the most respected Bible scholars in the world. 
PhD with distinction, Harvard University, had written two textbooks, um, early Christian backgrounds and, and baptism. Ba- his book on baptism is a thousand pages. A thousand pages on baptism, right? It took him like 15 years to write the thing. And both of these textbooks were, were considered standard everywhere from some places as like progressive and liberal as Harvard Divinity School to some places conservative as, as Trinity where Kyle Caton is now. He was standard everywhere. And so this guy was just considered the top of his field. And so I go in to take his class thinking, you know, oh, I'm just, you know, it's like sitting at the feet of, you know, the rabbi and you're sitting there listening. And then he just pulls out these notes that he typed in like 1958 and he just starts reading. And about five minutes in, the all went to pure boredom. And five minutes later, I was doing everything I could to keep from doing this because the guy was the most boring teacher God has ever created. (laughs) It was horrible. I walked out of that class hoping I would never have to take him again. God bless his heart. Then I go to the library, and I'm like looking for books he has written uh, in order to do my paper on him because you should always quote the professor favorably in the paper for the professor, right? Usually they don't argue with themselves in the paper. So I go, and I'm looking through his books, and one of them is there I've never heard of before. Demonology in the early church. I'm like, this is interesting. And so I pick it up, and it turns out to be a series of lectures he gave. And, And at the University of Mississippi, of all places, which I guess is hot enough to do a thing about demons. And... He goes, and, and I read this, and you can't find this book. It's, it was just printed. There's like 100 copies printed uh, uh, from these lectures. And so I got his permission to Xerox it, and I, I've still got a Xerox copy of it. And I was reading through it again this week. And he, like, surveyed every single writing that mentions demons, ancient Jewish writing, Greek writings, early church writings. And he says all these chapters, this, it's, it's, a, it's an incredible read. And my respect, like, went way up for him again, right? Because this is a guy who spent years you know, studying demons. And his research is really interesting. Like, for example, nowhere in the Bible does it describe Satan or his demons, physically. Nowhere does it say, anywhere in the Bible, Satan looks like this, demons look like this. So, where does the, the picture of the horns and the hoofs and the pitchfork, where does that come from? And so, here's... Hollywood? No, not quite, but here's, um, here's where it comes from. Um, to a degree. In the Old Testament, if you read through the book of Leviticus, it talks about the fact that Israelites are not to eat of anything with a hoof. Right? And there's a long reason for that. I'm going to be talking about that next week at Christ Community Church, shameless plug. But there, there, there's, a, there's a theological reason for that. So they took that. They took the, the hoof as something, as something evil. Jews did. So you have the hoof, right? The horns come from the god Pan. And, and in fact, um, one of the reasons, theological reasons, that um, they get that is that one of, one of the Canaanite gods, Baal, which is the god that often they would sacrifice their children to, had hoofs. Right? So this comes in to that. And they believed that the parallel of Baal in the Greco-Roman world was the god Pan. And the god Pan had horns. It looked like, kind of like a goat. So 
They combine this in early Christian imagery. And then the pitchfork comes from Poseidon. The god Poseidon was another one that was worshipped by the Greeks and Romans and sometimes even sacrificed to because they were really, really scared of sea travel. People didn't swim for fun in the ancient world. So if your boat went down in the Mediterranean, you didn't just tread water, you know, or like the chick with the badonkadonk who can't get Leonardo DiCaprio up on the police planquet. It, it, you know, you don't just float around and wait to get picked up. In the Mediterranean, well, am I wrong? And in the Mediterranean, <laughs> in the Mediterranean, if you go down, you're dead, right? So they were terrified of the sea, and so there were a lot of sacrifices made to Poseidon, which they see, therefore, as a rival god. So you take Pan, you take Baal, you take, you take Poseidon, you put it all together, and you get the image of the devil that we have today. But there's nowhere in Scripture. It's, just a, it's a combination of kind of traditions that come together. And so, and then Dr. Ferguson talks about the fact that the Bible also Also, you know, we create these traditions about what the devil looks like, but there's nothing in the Bible to tell us. And then, in fact, he argues, demons and Satan are probably bodiless. And then, you go to, where do they come from? Where do demons come from? Now, the traditional interpretation is to take some verses out of context from the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation and to argue that there was this war in heaven. And in this war in heaven, Satan lost. And that Satan and his demons who fought with him are kicked out. Now the problem with that is that it's taken from what's called apocalyptic literature. And an apocalyptic literature is highly metaphorical. It, it's, it's, it's not to be taken literally. And if you read the rest of Scripture when it talks about God's throne room, it is almost certain that there no sin is allowed there. So there's, there's, the war in heaven thing is probably not literal. And so, and the Jews knew that. So you don't find this in like Jewish literature. They didn't read the book of Daniel that way. When Jews write about the devil, they had several theories. The first theory is this one. That in Genesis 6, there's this weird story about the sons of God and the daughters of man. Anybody remember this? It's this really odd reference that the sons of God found the daughters of man attractive. And that this incurs God's wrath. The Jews theorized that these were angels who fell because they lusted after human women. And that they somehow took on a human form. And that this is the fall of the demons. The problem with that is, of course, three chapters before that, you have Satan in the Garden of Eden. So so rabbis started to say, yeah, that can't be it. And so some rabbis started to argue that where you get Satan, where Satan and the demons fall. And maybe you can, some people try to harmonize these two stories, but is that Satan becomes incredibly jealous of Adam and Eve. He becomes jealous of Adam and Eve because they are made after the image and likeness of God. And they're given the earth, and they're given dominion over the earth, whereas the angels are given dominion over nothing. They just have to serve. And that Satan becomes jealous and tempts Adam and Eve to sin, and that Satan and his followers are cast out of heaven. And that this is where demons come from. Interesting. But the Bible does not spell that out anywhere. And that's important to remember. 
Now, here's what else we know about demons. If you read the Bible carefully, you will find that despite Tom and Jerry cartoons, what you've learned from Tom and Jerry cartoons, and I've learned a lot, Satan and the demons do not run hell. It is not the place where, like, if you die and you go to hell, all right, it's not like South Park. Have you seen the South Park, heaven, the hell episode in South Park? You go and, like, Satan's got, like, a condo on the River Styx and he's got demons who are employed to do different things. That's not how it works. The Bible is very clear that Satan and demons suffer in hell alongside of people. They are punished in hell. They do not run it. Satan does not rule hell. He suffers in hell with everyone else who has rebelled against God. But the Bible is clear that unlike human beings, demons do not, and angels do not get a second chance. That if they rebel, done. Cast away, never to return. Now this is important because what the Bible also teaches about demons is this. There is not some kind of agenda where the demons believe they're going to mount some kind of massive campaign and defeat God. They know they have no chance against God. Whenever they fall in front of Jesus Christ, they don't go, come on, let's do it, 12 rounds right now. They beg for mercy. Because they recognize who their master is. They know they can't take on God. They know they have no second chance. There is no redemption. They know they are set for suffering in hell for eternity. Now, that means that they are about as petty and nasty as a creature can get. Because if you take a creature and it has no hope of redemption and it has been cast away, then they will do everything they can to hurt the one who has cast them away. They will do everything they can to hurt the loved ones of the one who has cast them away. It is purely out of spite that demons do what they do. Pure hatred and spite. Now, if you have the TV on all the time like I do, and you're just walking around and and you're hearing things constantly, whether it's Today's Show or Good Morning America or, or whatever, you will know that right now there is what is dominating the headlines, despite the fact that we have budget crisis, despite the fact that the Middle East is still falling apart, all apparently the three networks can talk about is that Taylor Swift is mad at Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. Have you taken sides on this one? Yeah, some people are nodding. I'm not even going to ask where you fall in on the great Swift-Poehler-Fey, you know, divide of 2013. But apparently at the Golden Globes, I didn't watch the Golden Globes, but apparently at the Golden Globes, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler cracked a joke about the fact that you know, Taylor Swift basically falls in love like weekly, gets dumped weekly, and then records an entire album about it. Right? It, the, every Taylor Swift song I have ever heard, which is about three of them, they're all about being dumped. Right? It's like that's all this girl does is get dumped and write ten songs about it. And she's not quite, 
maybe because she's young enough. For those of us who lived through the 90s, there was one breakup album for women that went far beyond what Taylor Swift ever did. That was Alanis Morissette, Jagged Little Pill. Right? Before she got all happy and went to India and threw her career away, she was really, (laughs) really, really angry. Right? And if you remember Jagged Little Pill, I mean, it's just one song after another where it's just like, you know, whoever this dude is, and there was all this speculation about who the guy was. Some people said it was Joey from Friends, and some people said it was, yeah, I mean, it goes on and on and on about who, who this person is. But the album was really angry. Taylor Swift hasn't gotten there yet. I have a feeling she, she's either going go to go to India and get happy, like Alanis Morissette did, um, and be relegated to doing bad YouTube videos like she does. Or she's going to get really angry, like Alanis Morissette. And if you've heard You Ought to Know, the song You Ought to Know, and I'm not recommending it, please, I'm not, don't quote me on that. I get in enough trouble as it is, okay? Because there is, there is profanity and all this stuff, but, you know, I, I, the first time I heard on MTV back when they would bleep all that stuff, back when MTV played videos. And so th- there's the song. And you could even see it in her face in the video that she's just, she was still, I mean, she probably wrote this song two years before, and she's still mad, right? And when I, when I saw her perform live, she's still, it's like a year after that, she's still mad. It's like three years later, and she's still really torqued off, right? And that does not even begin to come close to, to where demons are. Having been cast away from God, they're just angry, and they're just petty, and they just want to destroy and create as much damage as they possibly can here and now. And demon possession comes, comes about for all kinds of different reasons. Now, I would argue theologically it is impossible for a Christian to become demon-possessed. But for non-Christians, it is possible for any non-Christian. It does tend to happen more in developing countries now than it does here. And I think there's a reason for that as well. Going back to the 90s, I seem stuck in the 90s. I'm like a bad VH1 special at this point. But um, in 1995, there was the cinema classic The Usual Suspects, right? Seen The Usual Suspects? If you haven't, shame on you. Nobody shout out the ending. Don't ruin it for everybody. And there's a scene in there where Kevin Spacey's character says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing us he doesn't exist. Right? In a a culture like we're in, the greatest thing the devil can do to really be petty and nasty is to tempt and lay low. Right? Right? Because the moment he shows up, you begin to ask questions. But in developing countries, it tends to be different. Because they tend to look at religion as who has the most power. And so a demon will possess a person to try to show that they have more power. And it doesn't help that when people show up to deal with the demon possession, 
they do a bunch of rites and rigmarole and all that kind of stuff, which the Bible does not call for. The Bible says very clearly, Jesus says, if you want to cast out a demon here, you do it by prayer and fasting. In other words, you do really nothing. You go to God and ask him to do it for you. An act of trust, of faith, of service. It takes a lot of service. It takes the kind of servant kind of attitude to walk into a situation where they see you as somehow holy as the Christian and say, I can do nothing. I have no power here. All I can do is beg God to do something alongside you. You see how different that is from what the disciples were probably trying to do, which was to show off in front of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Do you see that? Now, here's where this all ties in together. If prayer and fasting, if taking something before God can deal with something as evil as the demonic, what else can it do? Now, I'm not, I'm not promising some kind of success or formula. Please understand me. I'm saying that typically, here's what we do. Here's what I do. People come to me, and they say, I need counseling, I need this, I wrestle with this issue. And my immediate default is, okay, let's talk. I've been trained for this, let's go. When according to Scripture, the thing I have to do is what? Pray. Is turn it over to God. I, I can do nothing on my own. You know, every Sunday night, um, Ryan and Justin and I go up there and we pray for the service. That, that's what we're doing up there, if you ever wondered. We're going up there and we're praying for the service. Because we know that we know that we can't pull this off. We can't help anyone here. We, we can't do anything without God showing up. If God doesn't show up, I mean, as good as the praise band is, and they're really good. You guys missed the 15-minute Led Zeppelin jam earlier. And it, it, was, it was fantastic. Even with, when Dunham took the drums, it was fantastic. Right? It was incredible. And... As good as they are, nobody's going to worship here if the Spirit doesn't show up. My sermon's going to fall on deaf ears if the Spirit doesn't show up. Portsmouth will remain trapped in darkness, crime, drugs, and everything else if the Spirit doesn't show up. It's the way it's going to be. And the only way you fix that is by prayer and fasting. And that means you have to have enough of an attitude like Jesus is telling his disciples to do, which is give up. Quit acting like you can do anything and turn it over to Jesus Christ. He is the one who with one command sends demons out. He is the one, according to the book of Revelation, there's not going to be some huge fight between God and Satan. The book of Revelation says God goes, go, and they go. And that's it. 
done, over with. That's power, power we don't have. And the humility to trust that power comes from this fact, that our God does turn himself into the hand, places himself in the hands of the enemy. These demons that he's kicking out, according to the Gospel of John and other places, he says before he goes to the cross, this is the hour of darkness. He is saying that he is going to allow the demons to have their way with him. How many of you have seen the movie or read the book, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Right? Do you remember what happens to Aslan on the table? Right? He gives himself over. This is where Lewis is getting this from. This is what he does when he goes to the cross. He gives himself over to demons to have their way so that they will never touch us. And here's the last thing you need to remember about demons. They exist, but you never have to deal with them. Ever. You do not have to deal with demons. You don't have to deal with Satan. If you've read the book of Job, the book of Job begins with Satan saying to God, Job, your man Job, will turn away from you if you let me at him. And and God says, go ahead. Satan has to ask permission. And so he goes and he attacks Job. And Job keeps protesting that he didn't do anything wrong, which in one sense is right, in another sense is not right, because we all sin. And Job, at the end of the day, he keeps saying, I wish God would show up, and God does. And at no point does God say, Job, this isn't really my fault. You see, Satan wanted to crack at you, and so he did it, and you need to be mad at him. He doesn't mention Satan because he doesn't have to. Job only has to deal with God. We only have to deal with God. Even if we are put in a situation where it appears there is true demonic activity, we turn and pray because we don't have to deal with it. Only God has to deal with it. And only He can deal with it. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Oh, Father God, um, thank you that even though we know that there's evil out there, the only evil we really need to deal with is the evil within ourselves. And even that we can't handle ourselves. We have to go to you and ask you to handle it. We, ask, we have to turn to you for every evil. And, 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 and I'm not preaching and you're not saying anywhere in Scripture that doesn't mean that we do nothing. But it means ultimately we have no real power. And we have to have the humility to admit that, to know that what we're dealing with is, is beyond our comprehension that what we're dealing with is an enemy that is, that is angry and it is bitter and it is petty. There is nothing deeper there in the darkness. It just wants to hurt us. 
But if we turn to you and trust you, we don't even have to worry about that because you have already dealt with that. You have already taken every shot it's got. You absorbed all the evil it had to give on the cross. And in that, you exhausted the enemy of all of its power. And now it's just a matter of time before they're gone. And we're with you forever. We thank you for this. And now may we worship you in response to this. In Jesus' name, amen.